Good morning, Waterstone. My name is Madison Campbell, and I'm the Connections Pastor here. And I am so honored to be preaching to you all this morning and so excited that we'll get to be back together next weekend in person outside. Will you pray with me as we start this morning? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can gather digitally together. And Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word that we can learn from. Father, I pray that you will use me as a vessel this morning. And Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. In your holy name I pray, amen. Let's recap the year 2020 so far. We started this year in the middle of an impeachment trial for our president and then found out about something called COVID-19 that quickly took our world by storm in a global pandemic. This left businesses, schools, and so many more things closed with people grieving and losing their jobs and schools completely out of session. And then we found out that there was no more toilet paper in our nation and that killer bees had made their way from Asia to the Pacific Northwest and we had to get rid of them quickly. And most recently, the death of a man named George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota has sparked protests all over our nation and eventually our world over police brutality and racism. Now, I've been asking this question that probably a lot of you or your friends or family members have asked throughout 2020, and that is what is happening? What is happening in our world? And this morning, I want to challenge us to change our question a little bit from what is happening to what is my role in what is happening And I think the story that we're looking at this morning, we find that the Jews, after they have been exiled in Babylon and are now living in a Persian kingdom, are likely asking a similar question. What is happening? God, you said we were going to be in the promised land and now we're dispersed all over Persia and we're not in Jerusalem and things aren't going well. What is happening This morning, we're looking at the book of Esther, and there are four main characters in this book. The first is Esther herself, who the book is named after, and then her father figure, who's a really good guy, Mordecai. We then have Mordecai's arch enemy, Haman, who, if you're from Colorado and you remember the Haman fires, he is fury. He consumes the things around him, and he is anger itself. And finally, we have a man named King Xerxes, who's the king over the entire Persian empire. We start the book of Esther, finding out that King Xerxes has summoned his queen to be paraded about in his court so that he can be shown how honorable and wonderful he is. But this queen decides she's not going to do what, his, what the king has commanded her. And so like any king would do, he doesn't fix what's broken, he replaces it. And this is where Esther comes in. After a 12-month beauty pageant, she finds favor with King Xerxes and becomes the new queen of Persia. We leave Esther there to come into two more characters, Mordecai and Haman. Now, Mordecai is a part of King Xerxes' court, and he hears that there's a plot to overthrow Xerxes by two of his officials. Mordecai then tells Esther, who tells the king, and the king's life is saved. Right after this, Haman, who is full of himself and so impressed with who he is, becomes the second in command in King Xerxes' court. 
Now everyone else is just as impressed with Haman as he is with himself, and they bow down and worship him, with the exception of one man, Mordecai, because he's a Jew. Now Haman, even though he gets the honor from everyone else, cannot believe that this one man would have the audacity not to bow down. So he plots not only to kill Mordecai, but to eliminate every last one of his people, the Jews. He casts lots to find out what day in fate is favored to be the day where the Jews are killed. And he proposes this to King Xerxes, who signs off, and an edict is then sent to all of Persia, saying that this day in the future is the day when the Jews will be wiped off the face of the earth. What is happening? Now, like I said, there are four main characters in the book of Esther, but one of the characters that's not named was God. And that's because in the book of Esther, God is not mentioned not even once. But does that mean that God is not active in the book of Esther? Well, no, it wouldn't be in the Bible if that was the case. I actually think that God's presence in the book of Esther is veiled. And by veiled, I don't mean absent or passive. By veiled, I mean that it is not overt or immediately seen. God is moving even though he is not seen in this book. He is active. He is providential. And his will is moving and working even when we can't see it. But what purpose does this veiled presence serve? Why would God do this? Because it seems like a little bit more of a punishment than anything. And this is what I think that the book of Esther is teaching us. This is what it's bringing us to. I think that God's veiled presence in the book of Esther is an invitation to you and to me. We see this particularly in the text that we're diving into this morning, Esther 4 verses 12 through 16, in a dialogue between Mordecai and Esther right after this edict has gone into all the land and everything is going wrong. We are at the peak of chaos and God's felt unseen presence or his veiled presence is made known to these people. And Mordecai comes to Esther petitioning her to use her position and her power in the kingdom. This is Mordecai reminding Esther that God's veiled presence is an invitation for her to participate in God's redemptive plan. This is what he says to her. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. God's veiled presence is an invitation to participate in his plan of redemption. And Mordecai's words are not threatening, but they are very clear. If you choose not to do this, someone else will, but you are invited. See, there is not a neutral choice in God's plan of redemption. This reminds me of a time when I was in third grade and we had a new student join our class partway through the semester. 
He was shy and small and very quiet, and my class decided that we were going to initiate him to our school. So one day during recess, I watched as my classmates stole this boy's shoes and buried them in the gravel, while the rest of them mocked him and pushed him around and bullied him until the bell rang. We went back inside and my teacher quickly found out what had happened and gave us all the same punishment. Now, as the indignant third grader that I was, I wanted to make sure that my name was not with the rest of them because I hadn't done that. I had only watched. So I went up to her and pled my case and she looked at me not missing a beat and said, but you didn't stop them either. There is not a neutral option in God's redemptive plan. See, some of you like me when I was in third grade think that you can sit on the sidelines and watch what's happening and and stay in this middle ground where we're not quite all the way in, but we also haven't said no. And God's plan of redemption is always happening, which means that we can't stay in this neutral place. Mordecai's statement that Esther's silence would result in someone else being used shows us a choice that we all have. Esther had to make a choice to participate in God's plan. And that was already happening. This is similar to options we have in our everyday lives. Am I going to help my neighbor who's struggling emotionally and mentally? Or will I see if someone else will do that? Do I sacrifice my resources for the oppressed person or or the marginalized person that I see? What about defending the widow or the orphan or the poor person, or, or the immigrant? Do I just leave that to an organization and hope that they're okay? You see, God is clear in his call for redemption, and our choice has to match that decisive call. This is the choice that Mordecai was presenting to, es- to Esther. Either you're in or you're out. You said yes or no, but there is no neutral. Now, I don't want us to mistake being impacted by God's redemptive plan for participating in it. Because God is good and because his redemptive plan is in all the earth, we will inevitably be impacted by his grace and by this plan in its motion. But just because we receive some of that, just because we feel some of the weight of that does not mean that we have actively said yes. And this is exactly what Mordecai is saying to Esther. Maybe her family would be saved if someone else redeems the Jews, but it's not through her and her being impacted by that was not the same as her participating in that plan. Now, before you wonder, have I lost my chance? I think that these opportunities come to us all the time, every day. Our no does not mean that we'll never get another opportunity to say yes to God's plan of redemption. But part of saying yes does mean recognizing our position and the role and the influence that we have and bringing it into agreement with what God's will and what his plan is. I see this happening all the time in our world. Doesn't mean that we're going to extremes of moving to countries that are war-torn or where Christians are oppressed. I see this happening of people participating in God's plan of redemption 
in giving food to our food pantry or volunteering there, of helping out with night lights or sitting and talking with a neighbor and maybe delivering groceries during this time of quarantine. God's redemptive plan is happening all around us all the time. Now I want to pause here because some of you might be asking yourselves, well, I don't even know what God's redemptive plan is, let alone do I know even how to identify it if the option came to me. And God has made his redemptive plan very clear throughout all of scripture. His plan of redemption is to restore creation to himself. This is through justice and hope and peace. This is God bringing shalom into our world and restoring all brokenness. Now, God is giving that invitation to us. But sometimes we need Mordecai's in our lives to help us see that we are being invited. These are people who help paint a bigger picture for us, who know what's going on, who know what God's redemptive plan is and can invite us to participate. Because when life happens, when we are dealing with grief or loss or pain or anxiety or depression or any number of things that life throws at us, it is normal and it is human for us to lose sight or to become confused or overwhelmed. And we need people who can bring that plan of redemption to us and bring us into it. In the 1920s, there was a famous theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he was part of the anti-Nazi movement in Germany uh, during the reign of Hitler. Well, his family saw an opportunity for him to be saved by sending him to the United States to study theology at a seminary in New York. And while he was in the U.S., he attended a church called Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, New York. Here, he experienced the camaraderie of brothers and sisters in Christ who were encouraging one another and who were enthusiastic and excited about what God's plan was. They remembered and they reminded him of what God was doing. And, and he began to reflect on the people that he had left in Germany and the ways that he had left God's redemptive plan for the Jews that was happening in the anti-Nazi movement. And as a result of what this church in Harlem did, he moved back to Germany to be with his people and to say yes to God's redemptive plan that was happening there. He eventually was imprisoned and died but this church in Harlem had been the catalyst. They had been the Mordecai of the bigger picture for him who showed him that God's veiled presence truly was an, invi God's veiled presence truly was an invitation for him to participate in the plan of redemption. Mordecai gave perspective knowing that God was providentially at work and extended the invitation to Esther to be part of that redemptive plan. Now, prior to Mordecai's call, Esther knew that if she approached the king unannounced and uninvited, she might be killed. But after Mordecai helped paint this picture, we can see that her response has counted the cost. And this is what she says in Esther chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
Esther's response is resolute. She is decisive on behalf of her people. And she shows us that God's veiled presence is also an invitation to action. Her first course of action is to call for a fast. And fasting was typically reserved for the Day of Atonement for Jews. But we see throughout scripture that it is employed on other occasions, particularly for justice. And in Isaiah 58 verses 6 through 9, we see a biblical model of fasting outside of the Day of Atonement. And in these verses, people are being called to fast and pray and seek God's presence for justice for the oppressed. This is what it says. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Fasting was a sign of Esther's submission to the position that God's providence had put her in. It was her way and her people's way of seeking God's veiled presence for justice for those who were about to be killed. And she petitioned him through this prayer and through this fast. Now, there's another part of Esther's action that is really remarkable. She brought her maids in on what was happening for her and her people. And we know from earlier in the text that these maids were already a part of the court of Xerxes. And so they were not fellow Jews. These were Persians or other oppressed peoples who had been conquered by the Persians. And so Esther, in bringing her maids in this place, was bringing people along on God's plan of redemption who did not yet know who God was. Through this, she is witnessing to the people around her about who God is and what he is about. Now Esther likely had many objections that she had to overcome, like what is going to happen if these women find out that I'm a Jew? Are they going to betray me and turn me over? I could be killed before I even get to King Xerxes because of this. She could have had the objection of, I don't know what's going to happen. And so I don't want to bring these people in because I can't control the outcome. And I have no idea whether or not them participating is even going to help anything. These are objections that you and I often have to bringing people in who do not yet know God to his plan because we want to control outcomes, because we want to control what people perceive about us. It is so common for us to reject participating in God's kingdom, to reject bringing other people to participating in God's kingdom because we are so fearful of the outcomes that we can't control. We are so fearful that it might reflect poorly on us and we may fall out of good graces with someone. 
And yet, I think some of the beauty of God's redemptive plan is that it is happening all around us. And when we bring people along, they get to witness God's providence and they get to witness what God can do in faith in our world. See, we don't bring others along with us because we can control the results. We bring others along with us because our faith in who God is and what his plan is, is greater than the unknown details. So what's the result of this story? What happens after this fast? Well, Esther goes to King Xerxes and she is found with favor. So she invites Xerxes and Haman to a feast at her house for the following day. They show up and have a wonderful time. And while they're there, she invites them to another feast the following day at her house. But that night, King Xerxes has a really hard time sleeping. And so like any king would, he has the history of his kingdom read to him as a bedtime story. And in that story, he finds out that a man named Mordecai helped save his life. And he asks, has anything been done to honor this man? To which he finds out, no, nothing. So the following morning, when Haman comes into the court, King Xerxes asks him, what would you do to honor someone who has saved the king? Now Haman, again, who is full of himself, thinks, well, you want to honor me, so I'm going to give you the most extravagant plan ever. And King Xerxes says, that is excellent. Go do that for Haman. So Go do that for Mordecai. So Haman has to take Mordecai on his own donkey and lead him through the city and declare how great he is. That evening, they go to the feast at Esther's house and Esther reveals to Xerxes the plot that Haman has against her and her people. And Xerxes is infuriated and has Haman executed on the same gallows that he had made for Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai then write a new edict for the Jews to protect themselves on the same day that was destined for them to be killed and the Jews are saved. I wanna remind us that in this whole story, God is not mentioned once and yet it is absolutely undeniable that he is moving through this story. God's veiled presence was an invitation to participate in his plan of redemption and to act. And through this, the Jews are saved. You and I have the same invitation to say yes, even if God's presence is veiled. This morning, I am asking and we are asking and inviting you to participate in a fast as Waterstone. Our leadership here has agreed that we want to petition God for his presence in our world and in our nation because we need only look around and see how broken and disruptive everything is. And so Tuesdays through the month of August, all of us at Waterstone have agreed as a staff that we are going to do this and we would love for you to join Tuesdays during lunch, we are going to fast and pray, emptying ourselves and asking God to come in.
because our nation and our world are distracted. Our church as a communal whole is distracted and we are in need of God's justice, just like Isaiah and just like Esther fasted and prayed for the oppression of people, for the God's justice to be released. We are doing that this summer. If you are unable to do it on Tuesdays or unable to fast, we would invite you to find some way else of asking God's presence to come because God's veiled presence is an invitation for you and for me and for all of us. What is happening in our world? But what is our role in what is happening in our world? You are invited. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, I thank you that even when your presence is veiled, you are moving. God, I ask that you will show us how to come in agreement with your will and with your plan of redemption. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a way to act. And Father, I pray that you will give us the courage and the boldness to say yes, even when we don't know the outcome, but we do know you. Lord, we thank you that you are redeeming the world. In your holy name I pray, amen.